If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And then you can read along as well as listen this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're studying Sunday mornings. We pick things up in chapter 2, verse 18. Peter writes, By the Spirit of God, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If one, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins on his, in his own body on the tree that is the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as we read this passage, we realize that it's important to you that every part of our life reflect Christ. And we bring, Lord, that same desire to your word and to the audience that you are today, Lord, in this place, the audience of one and looking at each of our hearts. And, Lord, we desire that every part of our lives would bring glory to you, would reflect you, would communicate to the whole world, whether by word or by example, that we are under new management and under wonderful management, the management of your Holy Spirit. So we pray this morning you would take this passage and instruct us in this very important area of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, instruction concerning how we are to conduct ourselves as uh, employees who are Christians, I mean, that might seem like an odd subject to address by Peter in a letter that is written basically to Christians who are in the midst of great suffering and great persecution. But what Peter is doing here is he's continuing to lay out the various means by which, as he states in verse 15, that we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And that is, Christians were being persecuted, they were being slandered and accused of being an enemy to Rome, and those false accusations were being believed by ignorant and foolish people. And what makes a person ignorant and foolish in that regard? Their failure to check out the facts, to discover whether the, this slander and this accusation was actually true. And so Peter is giving them and giving us the best way to silence and disprove false accusation is to live a life that is exemplary in both our actions and in our attitudes. And last week we looked at Christian citizenship in that vein. And this week he carries on the theme as he speaks to us as employees. And the desire is that we would be, as Christians, so outstanding and so valuable as employees in our workplace that it would silence that alone. If we had no other place to demonstrate the presence of Christ in our life, that in that environment alone it would silence every false accusation that is being brought against us, and then it would further result in employers 
wanting to hire Christians above all others. And so the idea would be that as these accusations are going against these Christians, that employers, no matter how good or bad or pagan or harsh they were, that they would meet the accusation by saying, I don't know where those accusations come about these Christians. All I know is that if I could hire ten more of them for every one of them that I've got working for me, I would do it. And that's the attitude that God wanted to produce within even the hardest of hearts on the basis of the Christian witness in the workforce. Now, since the very beginning of history, uh, the history of God's people, there's been this tension between what is considered sacred and what is considered secular. In other words, what is considered to be holy or to be dedicated to God uh, and, and uh, uh, as opposed to what it is that is secular, what is worldly or having no spiritual importance or no spiritual uh, impact or component. And so very often, not just in the world, but very often among us as Christians, people can view full-time ministry like being a pastor or being a, minister, uh, being a missionary, that that is obviously sacred uh, work. That's obviously spiritual and holy. But somehow that holding down a job and working in the world is just merely secular. It just pays the bills, but it's not really that important to God, and it really doesn't make any kind of spiritual impact at all. And so sometimes this is the attitude, that for a person working in the world, they can only be involved in spiritual work if they also then volunteer for some kind of service at their church. But then anything they're doing at, the, in, at work, uh, that's really they're just kind of killing time, putting food on the table, and there's nothing really there for God uh, to use. For whatever reason, uh, people's minds tend to gravitate in that direction. But the Bible teaches that there is absolutely, in the life of a Christian, no division between the spiritual or the secular. The Bible teaches that each and every one of us are in full-time ministry. And uh, you say that, and sometimes people say, yes, it's quite a cliche, or you can, whatever the impact of it. But I want us just to stop and to think about that. So that's how God views that. All of us, all of the time, all day, every day, uh, we are involved in a work that is sacred. Our entire lives have been made holy and sanctified because we are now a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. And so the Christian in his or her workplace, that's full-time ministry. The pastor or the missionary, uh, when they go into Costco and they're in line like everybody else, that's full-time ministry. They're on the job. They are in, in a place of being able to make an impact for Christ as much as anywhere else in their life. We just simply have different giftings and callings. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and he said, And whatever you do in word and deed, well, that covers most of it, doesn't it? Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He wrote to the church at Corinth, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, I mean, no matter how daily, no matter how much we get used to whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, everything is sacred in the life of a Christian, or at least it has the potential to be that, if we understand how to make it uh, so. I do not, and I never ever have, viewed my calling as a pastor as being more important than what God has called each of you to do. Now, it's not, it doesn't exist in my heart in the, in the smallest portion. What I, may, what I do may be different than what you do, but it's no more important, it's no less important than the Christian that God has <clears throat> teaching children or in the medical professional, or fixing and maintaining uh, computers, or farming, or landscaping, or whatever it might be where God has uh, placed us. I have uh, 
what I do is different than other people, but it is, and vice versa, but it's no more important. I have my place, but trust me, you do not want me performing surgery on you. You don't even want me working on your car. And you certainly don't want me working on your computer. But the Lord has gifted and called other people that are his children to do that. And when we do that as unto the Lord, it can have as powerful an effect on a person as any sermon that can be preached. When we reach people in their life where they're vulnerable, they have a need, they don't want to be ripped off, they don't want something done to them that's sloppy or dishonest, and we do them good as a Christian. Not the standard of the industry uh, as it might exist in the world, but we do as we would want to have done unto us. I tell you, that gives people a lot to think about in terms of us, in terms of the God that we represent. It is very, very powerful. And I believe that as we allow the Lord to do so, He ends up placing each of us in the exact strategic place that He wants us to spend our lives living out the life and the teaching of Jesus. I believe that He, as long as we have a peace about where we are in terms of where uh, we hold that job, that, that the Lord, as we uh, allow Him to do that, He places us exactly where He wants to place us. And I believe that He places us just as surely and just as strategically as He places any missionary on the other side of the world. Now, the world certainly, while we sometimes get all bound up in this difference between, well, there's this secular and then there's this sacred, the world doesn't know anything about it. That's a, that's a, that's a game we play in our heads for the most part as Christians. The world doesn't know anything about it. Again, as we've spoken about in the last couple of weeks, once somebody knows that you are a Christian, once they know that I am a Christian, they don't care if they see me behind this pulpit or they see me in a store or they see me driving. They are coming to conclusions about Christianity and conclusions about God on the, no matter where they find me in life. And the same thing is true of every single one of us as Christians. And again, people sometimes, they, they can balk against the fishbowl. I don't want to be in a fishbowl. I don't want to be watched that way. But it's a privilege to have live that kind of life and to be able to have that kind of an impact in the world. And God wants us to have that kind of impact. He has intended that we would be a watched people in this world, but He also intends the world to cease uh, something in particular when they do watch our our lives. And so to see the right thing and hear God tells us what He wants them to see in our lives and our workplace. Now in verse 18 he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters. In the, in the, in the old King James, the new King James, it says, Servants, the NIV, every once in a while they get it right. I'm just kidding. But if you've got an NIV open, you see they use the real word there. And the word is slaves. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. And that word uh, uh, servant uh, used there in verse 18 is not what we would think of as a servant if you watch like these, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice or some British film or something and, uh, or uh, servants that are used in our culture where they come in and they work in a house and then they go home to their own house and that kind of thing. That's not what it's, it's talking about here. It does literally refer to slaves and principally here to household slaves. And the fact that Peter would use a part of his letter to address slaves, it tells us a couple of things. First of all, there must have been a lot of slaves at that time for him to speak to them as some very large, significant group. And there were a lot of slaves at that time. And the second thing that it tells us is that a lot of those slaves had come to put their faith in Christ. And they had become a Christian and, and made up a significant portion of the Christian church at that time. 
And they did. It's estimated that at least a third of the population, some estimate as high as a half of the population of the Roman Empire at the time of the writing of this letter were slaves. Some estimate the number, everyone estimates the numbers to be at least in the tens of millions. Some estimate it to be as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time. So he's not talking about six people living on an island. There were a lot of slaves in those days, and a huge number of them were uh, Christians. Now, the... Uh, earlier in Romans, Rome's history, the Roman Empire, most slaves were the result of war and conquest. And so they would bring them into the empire. They would make slaves of them. But then there would be children that would result of the pairing up of slaves. Those children did not belong to the parents. They belonged to the slave owner. And so you had this huge uh, self-generating a group of slaves, a huge number that were being, no longer was Rome do, so heavy in the conquest business as they once were, but so many slaves were simply being uh, born as slaves as well. And slaves were considered to be the property of their owner. Not all slaves were in the Roman Empire were mistreated or kind of uh, consigned to back-breaking labor. Certainly many were, but not all of them were. A slave could have been a medical doctor in the family where they would see a, maybe a, a young boy and uh, in, in those days see an aptitude in that child at a young age and say, this kid is going to go somewhere. This kid is able to understand these kinds of things. They would pay for his education, and he would become the family doctor. It was all all flipped around. The family owned the doctor instead of the doctor owning the family. So that would be quite a thing. You'd have your own family doctor. And it wasn't just the medical professional. Many of the slaves were teachers or they were musicians or managers or uh, very professional in running whatever the empire was of the particular uh, uh, master that they had, artists and so forth. So they, it, it wasn't unusual for them to be highly valued uh, by the family. But having, been said, having said that, slaves were in the Roman Empire. They were just property. Uh, they, they were on a level of an animal. So you could do whatever you wanted to do. You could beat them to death. You could mistreat them in any way that you wanted to. And, and one of the things that would keep you from uh, beating a slave to death is that you would suffer the loss. But there was no like high moral attitude towards slaves. They were just a piece of property, and you used them to advance uh, your empire to make life easier uh, for you. And so this passage is addressed to slaves, but we can readily apply all of the principles that are found here to the closest thing to it in our society, which is employees. And I'm not saying employees are slaves. we should all go out and be anarchists and, you know, march on Wall Street. But in terms of our culture, uh, not yet. I'm just kidding. Uh, all, all kinds of thoughts are in my mind right now. I rebuke them in the name. <laughs> but it applies in our culture to this employee-employer relationship. And as Christian employees, Peter is telling us we're to submit to our employers. And the word submit means to place in order, to place under in an orderly fashion. In other words, I am to honor the chain of command, honor the authority structure in the business or in the situation that I am working in. There's the recognition on the part of a Christian who is an employee, that there is a boss and I am not the boss. Or you may be a boss, but you are under a boss. And so there is that recognition of that authority, that I am under their authority, and thus I am to obey their commands, their desires. As Christians, we should be the hardest working employees 
in any workplace in the world. No one should outwork a Christian in any work environment anywhere in the world. Peter is saying that we are to put in a full day's work for a full day's pay. A lazy, distracted, slothful Christian in the workplace is doing some of the worst damage to the reputation of Christ and of Christians that is possible. I cannot speak for women on anything. But I have a hunch men and women are close on this issue. And I certainly can speak for men. If a Christian man is at work and he is a lazy, do the least that he can, good for nothing, he better keep his mouth shut about God. Because nobody's interested in what he has to say about anybody or anything because we're all carrying your weight. And so don't open your mouth and tell me about God until you've earned my respect as an employee and as a hard worker. And then maybe I'll listen to you. That's just the way that it is. We earn the right to speak into people's lives. And in the work environment, there has to be a respect for us as workers, conscientious, in order to be, uh, to open our mouths and in order to be, uh, to speak and then to have somebody actually give some consideration to what it is that we're, we're speaking about. Now, not every worker is equal in terms of skill. Every position I've ever held in life, there, there have been men and women who could do it better. That's just the way that it is. They are smarter. They're more talented. They got the job and what was required of it. They just were. In the same way that in the NBA, not everybody has a 42-inch vertical jump. Or we'd all, uh, we'd all be in training camp if they weren't on strike. We'd all be making $20 million a year. We had a 42-inch vertical jump. So not everyone has the same talent. Not everyone is a Michael Jordan or LeBron James or whoever you might want to put in there. should drop a Golden State Warrior name, but I can't think of one at the moment. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? So the, not everyone has the same talent, but everyone on an NBA team can work just as hard as the one who has the most talent and, and needs to in order for a team to succeed. And so the same thing is, is related to us as Christians. We may not be the most skilled, we may not be the most talented worker, but we should all be hardworking and we should obey the coach or the boss. Not only we to work hard, he tells us, but we're also to have a good attitude while we do that hard work. He tells us in verse 18 concerning our attitude, we're to be submissive, not just submissive, but with all fear. In other words, we are to respect our employers or our bosses uh, and their position of authority in our lives. We may not be able to respect everything about their lives, and we may not be able to respect anything else other than this about their lives. But we are to respect their position of authority and that I work here, I have taken this job, and I have accepted the fact that I'm going to work under this person's uh, authority. And so we are to be model employees. We're not to be rebellious employees. We are not as Christians to be problem employees unless we're commanded to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. In other words, they say, all right, now we've got to meet the quota and you need to lie, cheat, and steal in order to do that. And, and so when we're asked to do something contrary to the Word of God, then we say, no, I cannot do that for you. You know how hard I work for you. You know what a good employee that I am. But now you're asking me to do something that will destroy my Christian witness in this environment, and I cannot do that. And then they'll have to decide whether they want to lose the caliber of employee that you are in order to turn you into a cheater and into, uh, into a liar. So we don't, we don't submit uh, with fear 
all the way into disobedience. Now, there is a certain kind of employee, perhaps you know of some, hopefully you're not one, but a certain kind of employee who just likes to whine and complain and fight and argue over every decision that the boss makes. I remember when I worked for the phone company, and uh, there's a cable splicer. I won't mention his name. Uh, certain names you do remember the rest of your life. Prob- probably one of the most talented cable splicers we had. There's nothing he could. There's nothing he could not do. Nothing he could not figure out. Just fabulous. But the worst whiner and complainer you've ever met in your life. The worst one I've ever known in any work environment. So he would show up and he would be given the, the tasks that he was to accomplish that day. It never met with his approval. He had to drive to and he had to, and then here, and then, had, and then this and that. And he'd, and he'd moan and complain at the desk for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and then take his clipboard and storm out. Every day this is what would go on. The man just simply could not be pleased. And for all of his talent as a cable splicer, what he brought negatively with the bad attitude in the workplace, it wasn't worth it. Nobody wanted him on the crew. Nobody wanted to endure that every single day. And so, uh, there's not only is there no respect for the person who is uh, lazy, but there's no respect for the person that has a bad attitude all of the time uh, either. And, and so that kind of person really becomes a leaven in a work environment. So not only are we to be hard workers, but we're also to do it with a good attitude, showing respect to the chain of command uh, and, and for those that are in authority over us. And you think this is like, this is like uh, employee, employer, 101. How basic can it be? Why would God even commit the room to this? But no employer thinks that. And today, and obviously jobs are very tight in the last few years, but even on entry level where you have people coming in, the family, I mean, they, have, they haven't been fashioned properly by a family, by parents. They haven't even been fashioned by society in a proper way. They just come into the workforce and believe that this company that they've become a part of exists for them to have a job. I mean, that entitlement mentality without the realization that I have to bring value to any environment that I'm in in a workplace and I have to bring more value than I'm paid for. That's called profit. That keeps the business in business so I can keep my job and everybody else can keep their job. And so these things are not as uh, bonehead as we think or that everybody gets uh, all of this. And for uh, some people, depending on where they come from in life or where they are in life, these kind of things, recognizing just these two things and doing this in the first job that you get will allow you to be successful so you don't lose your first five jobs figuring all of this out. So we're ahead of the curve on all of it. Now, there's no exceptions to this, as he tells us in verses 18, the end of verse 18, also in verse 20. He tells us that we're to be obedient and we're to be hardworking and we're to be respectful, whether the master is good and gentle, like me, or whether they're harsh, like You don't think I was going to fill that blank in. In other words, when it's easy and when it's hard, we're to be obedient uh, to this. Anyone can submit to a good and gentle and fair and honest boss. That doesn't require anything of us. But, uh, But we differentiate ourselves from everyone else when we're able to do the same thing for a harsh Boss, that's what makes us stand out 
as a Christian in the world so often. So we're not to use the temperament of the boss or the employer as an excuse for not being faithful to God concerning this. God, I would obey this except that guy, man, will you know? God's all right. Let me just, can we get Gabriel over here and Michael and we'll just change that. What's the name of your boss so we can insert him into the text? Now he's supposed to do this for everyone. And so uh, it's not an excuse for not being faithful to God in this. And he tells us at the end of verse 20 that this is commendable before God. That word before is an interesting word. It's a good one. It's the Greek word para. And the word para, we get our word parallel from it. Para means alongside. It means nearby. It means in the immediate vicinity. In other words, when we do this, God himself is present and he takes note of it. So the highest motivation when we've got a boss or we're in that kind of an environment and they are harsh, and some of these slaves are beatings going on in this, is how in the world do I, you know, maintain this high standard related to this? The guy doesn't deserve it, and, 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 and what I give to him day in and day out in terms of work and, and all. And here he tells us that the highest motivation for staying faithful to these commands is the knowledge of God's presence, the awareness of his presence in that workplace. Lord, you're right here. I am doing this for you. The funny thing is, as Christians, we will do for God what we would never do for anyone else. We wouldn't even do it for ourselves, but we will do it for God. And when we realize that God has placed us in this place and He is present, then that, that gives us that, that high recognition, Lord, I am supremely working for you in this place. And I just acknowledge your presence here right now. And so to obey this command, commandment, uh, we do it not supremely for the sake of some harsh master, but we obey it as unto him. And recognizing there in the words of verse 20, this is commendable before God. In other words, he notices it and it blesses him. He is present in our workplace and, and I am working for him there. Now there's a, uh, uh, so Peter tells us that this working in this way as unto the Lord, even unto harsh masters, is one of the ways that we can bring the Lord uh, pleasure. And it's interesting, pleasure not only in the worship service, as we've enjoyed already this morning, not in, the, in uh, church only, all of which is wonderful, but also being the kind of uh, employee that he wants to be, us to be in the workplace, that this brings him pleasure and it blesses him. Now, we close here by noticing that Jesus is our example in all of this. He's our example in suffering, verses 21 to 25. And Peter tells us that we're to obey the Lord in all of this, even in the face of suffering, verse 21, because that's the example that Jesus left for us. He is our example in every area of life including this realm called suffering. That word example, it's worth circling, at least in your mind. It's an interesting one in the Greek. It's a, it's a Greek word that's really a word picture. It's intended to produce a picture uh, in your mind. And the picture is of this. And, I, and we'll take it out of their culture and we'll move it into our culture. So whatever grade we're in, kindergarten, first grade, whatever, and you know how we would get those uh, kind of sheets of paper and we're learning how to write and there would be an absolutely perfectly written capital A right there. And then they give us a pencil. And then we're supposed to copy that to the very best of our ability. And so we take that, and that A is our example. And you watch that diligent student, that little boy, that little girl who really cares, and how hard they work. They're, they're not going to match the perfection of that A. 
But they know that's the example and they give tremendous effort to copy that A. And that's what the Lord is telling us to do here in that workplace and in the midst of suffering. That it, it isn't a thing of, oh, I, I, did it. I can't do it. I, I'm not going to. But that we really diligently make Jesus our example and we really make an effort to emulate or to imitate him in, in, that, uh, in that environment, in his example, in that in environment, making every painstaking effort uh, to do so. So Jesus is our pattern, and we're to make every effort, as I said, to emulate him as closely as we can. And so when we're in this place where we're suffering for righteousness' sake, we don't need to wonder, okay, how do I conduct myself? How do I act? How do I, you know, respond in this way? Do I have to define the whole thing? Do we need to put the whole home fellowship together, and we'll put our heads together, and we'll come up with something? No, it's already in the Bible. The example is already there. And the example is in Christ. No guessing necessary. And here's the example that Jesus has given us. Verse 22. He was absolutely sinless, absolutely perfect, and yet he suffered unfairness and he suffered harshness in the world. I'm so shocked when I do. I'm so shocked when I'm treated disrespectfully. And Jesus said, listen, a servant isn't going to be better than his master or above his master in this world. What they've done to me, they will do to you. And then that brings me back to reality. And so here, uh, here is Jesus. He suffered. He didn't suffer for his own sins because he didn't have any sins. And so the greatest example of suffering unjustly in all of human history is found in the treatment that Jesus received here during his incarnation in the world. Perfectly innocent of I'm at all wrongdoing, and yet he suffered at the hands of harsh men, brutal men, continually. I think about how wonderful... It must have been to those first century slaves who were Christians. The difficulty of that environment. To realize I am not alone in the world's treatment of me in this way. I'm not alone in suffering for being righteous and doing good. For suffering, not because of any fault on my part, but because of the absolutely gigantic flaws of character in my master. And then to look and to realize that Jesus, my Savior, he endured it and and that he understood their plight completely and that they were in outstanding company and so are we when we're treated unfairly in the workplace we're told in verse 23 how jesus responded to revilings and threats when he was reviled he didn't revile in return when he suffered he didn't threaten now anybody can anybody can return reviling for reviling do you need a quiet time for that let's see lord i just I just pray you give me the ability to just repay evil with evil today. No, you can, you can wake up, pop right out of the bed, out the front door and be ready to do that every single day. Doesn't take any effort to repay reviling with reviling. But it really takes, uh, the, to refuse to do that uh, really takes something and it marks us as being different in the world and to refuse to repay suffering with threatening and reviling with reviling Jesus refused to do that not, it's not a weakness it's the evidence of great strength there's an old story I read years and years and years ago in the Reader's Digest that I like in this regard and it, it told of a man who took a friend to a, a, a corner newspaper stand in a major city uh, to buy a newspaper, and the newsstand attendant growled at him, What do you want? 
And the man answered politely, Today's newspaper, please. And he gave the attendant his money. The attendant thrust the newspaper at him, took the money without a word. He turned around uh, away to serve another customer. Thank you, said the customer, and there was no reply. And as they walked away, <clears throat> the friend asked, Does he always treat you like that? And the man said, He has for the past ten years. And the friend said again, Have you always treated him just as you did? I have for about the last ten years, was the reply. And his friend shook his head in disbelief. He said, I don't understand. And the man who bought the newspaper explained, he said, I'm not going to let that man determine how I act. It's a powerful thing. So I don't want to be like everybody else in the world. I don't want to be like every other employee in the world. And you notice also in verse 23 that, uh, and I want to say one thing about that. We do not live down to the standard of this world in any area in the Christian life, and certainly not in, in this area. Almost all work environments uh, have personalities. They have politics involved. There's an awful lot of dynamics that are happening in that environment. And we do not live down to the standard of the world in any of that. We live to a higher standard. But it wasn't like Jesus did nothing in the face of provocation. We look at that and we say, all right, he didn't revile, and when he suffered, he didn't threaten, and so he was just completely passive in the situation. Because we think that a proper response would be reviling or that it would be threatening, and that there's nothing else on the table in terms of a powerful response to that kind of treatment. But it wasn't like Jesus did nothing in the face of the provocation, because he did. And what he did do instead of threatening and reviling in return is we're told that he committed himself to him, that is God the Father, who judges righteously. In other words, he gave God the Father his obedience, and then he trusted him to work it all together for good. And he had absolute confidence and faith that if the Father had called him to spend his life in this way, that the Father would also make sure that his life did not go to waste, that God would make his life count. And the Bible says, so can we. And when Jesus entrusted himself to the Father in this way, was his faith misplaced? No, and neither is ours. You notice in verses 24 and 25 the good that came out of it. Jesus bore our sin on the cross of Calvary in what was the greatest scene of injustice in human history. And what was the result of that crucifixion? What was the result of that mistreatment? Nothing in human history. He wasted his life at 33 years of age by allowing himself to be crucified rather than repaying, reviling with reviling. Was his life wasted? No. The Father used that sacrifice, Peter tells us, to heal us spiritually and to give us the opportunity to die to sins and to live for righteousness and to return to God, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And what is the point to Christians who suffer at the hands of unjust masters and employers both then and now? That if God could overrule Jesus' crucifixion at Calvary and work it together for good, then I can trust him to do the same thing in my life. He will never allow a single area of our life to be wasted how in the world and why in the world would God allow a block of our life that for the average person involves at least eight hours a day? For most people, many more than that. That he would just write that off as nothing that he can use to do something significant with. It's just the waste. It just puts food on the table at best and gives us some kind of personal satisfaction if we end up landing a job that gives us that. God's not going to allow that much time. He's not going to allow a minute in our life. If He tells us to redeem the time, He's not going to have waste a minute of time in our life, much less hours and hours of our life in that way. 
And so he'll never allow our lives to be wasted, but he will make them count for the advancement of his purposes in the world. See, God, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see where, where, you, where I am in this place and what I do. Here I am. I'm working in this place, this factory. It's virtually empty. And, I, and I'm here at 2 in the morning. Now, what kind of difference can that make for your glory? That's not your problem. That's God's problem. And He promises that it'll make an impact. And I think one day it'll be very, very interesting as we stand before that reward seat of Christ to come to realize how powerfully, though nobody said anything, nobody said, nobody made a peep, but deep down inside they noticed something different and they respected us and they respected our Christianity as a result. God will make sure that that time is not wasted. Now, imagine how this teaching by Peter would have impacted those first century slaves. Not just employees, but slaves. All your life, you've been doing a job that you have hated and despised. Every day you wake up just hating the grind that is going to be that day. And the only reason that you're doing what you're going to do on that day is because they have the authority to make you do it. If you had a chance, you'd get out of that in an instant. And then one day you hear the gospel. You hear of Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. His burial, His resurrection, and that by putting your faith in Him, you can have a relationship with God. And they hear that gospel. They put their faith in that Savior. And they become a Christian. And the very next day when they go to work with the realization that they're going to be doing all the same things that they've always done, but now it's no longer supremely about men or for men or good masters or bad masters. I am doing this for God. I am a servant of God in this place. I'm an ambassador for Christ here. This is where God has stationed me as his representative. And you think about the difference that they would view not only their work, but view their life as a result of that. Work is no longer just work because of Christ. Even in a circumstance of slavery, it had become something holy and dignified and high and noble. No matter what it is, and no matter where it is, and the whole wide world. That's the dignity and the nobility and the beauty that God has brought to work in the life of a child of God. And the work that we do and where God has placed us, it is a, a part of God's work in this world as much as that of any missionary or any evangelist or any pastor and that's good to think about and that's good to realize because he's using you and me in our place in a way that he couldn't use somebody else vice versa you are in contact with people I will never come in contact with all my life if I had a hundred lifetimes I wouldn't they get to watch Christ in you where they will never even know that I even exist and vice versa it's how it works and that's how God wants us to view our work and Jesus has made it possible Peter tells us here by bringing us into the kingdom of God into God's work and into God's purposes in this world again Colossians 3.17 and whatever you do in word and deed do all to the name do all in the name 
of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for every revelation of yourself that you have given in your word. It's wonderful to realize how important this is to you. And Lord, we thank you for the instruction this morning. We thank you for those that have heard some of these truths for the very first time in their whole life. And it's just dawning on them how significant their work life is in this world and the potential of it. Just continue to bless that in their hearts, Lord. And some, Lord, of us, we've heard these things many times before. But we love to be reminded because we know we need to be reminded. And we thank you for the reminder of that today. We thank you for every way you have given us to make you known in this world. And Lord, we thank you that you, we don't have to wait until we're 85 years old and life is now obviously short and the desire to use every moment to impact for you. But, Lord, that that can begin so much earlier in a life and to live a life of great significance, even from our youth. And so we pray that you use this passage, that you use this study of this passage this morning to produce all of that within our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to represent you in this world. We thank you that we are under new management we thank you that we are a part of your family. We thank you, Lord, that we are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you use us to give hope to people in this world as they see a different kind of life, that you use us and you're faithful to make your life in us attractive to other people. And we pray that you would do that, Lord, in the workplace as well. We ask all of these things of you. In the name of the one who makes all of it possible, in Jesus' name, amen.